another episode of Fratello on Air. I'm Mike Stockton, coming to you from Frankfurt, Germany. And I'm Balash Renzi, coming to you from Karlsruhe, Germany. What's up, Mike? Balash, how are you? Doing pretty good. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm okay too, you know, just the usual. I think last time we talked was, uh, it was a week ago. It and, was. Uh, yeah, and, but you guys will not hear this until, well, the next week. Um, nothing has changed, really. Uh, not on my end, not on the the um, government's end or Baden-Württemberg's end. Not much corona news. I don't really want to dwell on that topic too long because at this point it's um, it's not only boring, but it's starting to get a bit annoying as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. But yeah. we can't change much. Yeah. I uh, I actually uh, had the opportunity to leave Germany for a couple of days. And True. I went to nearby Austria and had had some work to do, actually. And it was, How was it there? Well, it, very similar to here. Most things were closed down. Things like restaurants were open until 7 for pickup or delivery. So they really shut things down early to really, you know, keep people from, mm. from going out. And, but it was, it was very similar, you know, some differences in rules, um, you know, ma no masks on the street where we were. And I don't know if that's consistent throughout the country, but, you know, you had to, we had to test before going in and register and then we, Oh, came. you did. Yeah. So, so we had to do that. Um, and with Germany, you know, if you if you step foot into a red country, you have to quarantine, but then you have to look at the state you're living in. So Hessen actually provides the allowance to to go out for a pretty brief period and come back without having to do that. So that that gave us the ability to do this trip. Um, we had to meet face to face for something and an Austrian colleague, if he had stepped foot into Germany. Uh, he would have had to quarantine. So this is why we had to go there. So it was, um, it, it's interesting, you know, you really have to really uh, read and understand the rules and, but it was fine. I mean, I think uh, there were three of us and I don't think we saw a single person other than the three, except for at a distance, you know, checking in or something. The hotel we stayed in was pretty, pretty quiet. There were some military folks there doing some, um, coronal related activities like contact tracing and answering hotlines, but mm -hmm. it, it was quiet. Um, I must tell you, it was kind of nice to, to actually see somebody in person felt very productive and yeah. still, still Did you drive. Yeah. I had to drive. Yeah. Well, we could have flown, but no drove. I mean, just kind of felt better about that and, and more control, you know, if the rules changed mm -hmm. while we were there. So, sure. yeah. And it was, um, you know, highways are, are pretty easy to, tr to, to traverse right now and, uh, oh, yeah. makes it, makes it pretty good, but you know, hopefully, hopefully we continue down the right path. Um, cause it felt good to, good to do that. Um, in terms of just, like I said, being productive and, um, interacting a little bit. So let's yeah. see. It, it feels crazy how fast you forget about these things. Like I, I was, uh, I don't even remember what I, why, or what was the reason, but I was browsing through some, some photos and I found some pictures and like, wow, it was 2000 end of the year, 2019, like so long ago. And it wasn't really that long ago, but it just, you know, feels like ages ago because I mean, life changed completely 
during that 14 months since October 2019 or November 2019. It's, it's insane, really. And um, I mean, even I was last time I traveled was with you, of course, in the Netherlands. But before, when I f um, flew home to Hungary in June or July, I think late June, that was last year in 2020. And that that's, you know, feels like ages ago already. I mean, yeah, it. it It's a weird thing when you can, um, like we were looking at some watches or talking about some in a group chat earlier and, you know, I'd seen, talking about Zenith or something, and I'd seen a, uh, a watch based off that model, like a different color live back in 19. And it's really easy to think about when you last saw something because you know it wasn't last year, basically. Yeah. And if it was, there were probably only three or four instances in which you got out. So it's mm -hmm. crazy to think that the last year just sort of rolled by and, uh, yeah. there, there and aren't that many experiences to, to right. recall from then. Right. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you guys, you've also, you've, you also been at the, um, uh, what was the event in Geneva? Um, the watch days. Yeah. Yeah. You've been there, but other than that, of course, when you talk about watch events, nothing took place and yeah i mean it's been uh it's been 2020 it's been a year that you can just basically just cross out of your your history and yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. nothing really changed yeah. but um listen let's let's move on to some some happier subjects first of all you know what we have to check Hangelenk controller yeah boy all right what are you rocking today so I came correct for our our subject which we'll introduce in a second and I am wearing a vintage chronograph today, and I happen to be wearing my 38-millimeter steel Excelsior Park. Uh, this mm -hmm. this uh, picks up on a, on a movement I think you were discussing yep. recently. It uh, uses the two-register EP4 column wheel chronograph, and it has what uh, we refer to as a tuxedo dial. So, I saw it on Instagram today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I, you were wearing that. I did put it up. It, it's got this gray and black um, dial that I think is just fantastic with these white numerals and white hands. Yeah, neat watch. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful watch, and it's a, it's a lovely. I mean, thirty eight is not a lovely size. It's a great size, actually. Thirty six would be a lovely size. Thirty eight, I think, for these chronographs is just uh, an amazingly large size, and it, it, that's a beautiful watch. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, and okay. I have to. To, to give a big thanks to Andreas, our mutual friend in Cyprus. He he actually came across the watch and I had the opportunity to buy it from him. I've had it serviced and it's a it's a, a unique piece in my collection. I have some galets with the same case. Uh, Gerard Perigo and I believe Zenith also used the same case and movements, but um, and sometimes the dials were similar, especially with Galet and Excelsior Park, but this one um has a dial I don't think ever made it to Galet, so kind of a cool piece. How about you? I'm wearing something different. It's not a chronograph this time, but it's a vintage watch. It's the um, Eterna uh, Caliber 852, the Eterna Jumbo, they call it, but it's not really a, I mean, it is a jumbo, I guess. When you look at Eternas, it's a 36.5 millimeter case. And um, so, you know, for, for Eternas, it's a pretty large one. But if you consider a 38 millimeter uh, Omega Jumbo or I have a 39 millimeter Tissot compared to that, it's, it's much smaller. But you see these watches from time to time. And another mutual friend of ours, Giuseppe, had 
one or maybe multiple ones, he had a couple of Eternals with this 852 movement. And he said it's in power with the 216 from Angelus. Just, uh, it looks actually very similar to that. And it's just a, a really beautiful movement. And the watch is just simple. Uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s. I I wrote uh, a 52 Mondays article about it. So probably going to be in the show notes um, about this watch. Um, so it's not such a large watch, but it's it's a fun piece. And there's a great story behind it. Which I'll not get into that. But if you guys are interested, you can read it in the article. It came from Switzerland. And it had this funky engraving about a company, I mean, a name and uh, given to a person from a um, buyer company. And there's plenty of Eternas with these case back markings, but different names. And um, I did some investigative journalism back then um, about the company, about the person, about the dates, and uh, came up with some interesting facts about um, about the Swiss company that gave out these watches. And chances are, if you find an Eterna 852, uh, Calibre 852, it is probably going to have... Uh, a case back like that. I mean, most of them have because I guess the company just, you know, bought a bunch of them and gave them out um, to multiple people. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool piece. Um, as I said, not the largest watch I have, I own, but but it's a very comfortable watch, hand-wound. So, yeah, that's my pick for today. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, um, you know, I mentioned on our last episode how your chronograph collection spans the decades and this is another area where you hit on these uh, 40s and 50s dress watches that are very simple, but larger cases. And yeah, I wish I could find some pieces like that because they look, they just look great. I mean, you were wearing a um, an Omega Jumbo, I think yesterday or the day before yeah. that looked fantastic as well. Yeah, that's a bit bigger. That's 38. And I think it's not even the largest. I mean, I, I think there's... I, I don't know the reference. I can't remember. But when I wrote about that watch, there was a comment about a, a reader who told me some other references that were even bigger. But that's uh, 38 or 38.2. And that's the reference 2505 with the 265 movement. And then there was another reference to the 266. It's all hand-wound watches. And, you know, they're, they're perfect um, now. But if you think about it, that's what I said in the caption. Like, think about this watch in 1952. When somebody walked into a shop and they sold these 33, 34, you know, maybe 35 millimeter watches. And then there was this giant watch felt like a 48 millimeter Hublot today. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Must have been shocking. The only thing is, yeah, but this one looks nice. That's the only difference. Um, But yeah, so um, I think they're they're very interesting pieces. And um, I have this one from Omega. I have another one, which is a bit smaller which is a, a bumper automatic. That's why it's quite interesting. Um, then the Eterna, so quite a few, but the largest I think I have is, I also wrote about it, that's a, that's a Tissot, and that's almost 40. Oh, that's an awesome is, one. That's a gorgeous watch. Which is in, yeah, it's insane. Like, who came up with the idea to make a 40 millimeter watch in like 1945 or 46? I don't know. Yeah, I got, I, I bought from one of those um, consignment shops here in Frankfurt a Doxa anti-magnetic with a large case but mm-hmm. and I, I need to shoot you that again i mean the, the dial looks positively old and it needs a cleaning but 
I'm I'm actually concerned that even then it's still a redial. I'm not sure because it says anti-magnetic, and I thought I was doing some reading that um, if it's not spelled in the French fashion, it's usually a redial, but I, I, I don't know. Could be. Is it a chrome case? No, it's actually steel. Because I have a few. I mean, I, I don't have a few. I've seen a few. Some of my friends have a few of these, and those are all chrome cases, but they were large, 36 millimeter, and same hands, same kind of... Uh, font on the Doxa, but yeah, Doxa was a funky brand back then. They did some some pretty interesting stuff, other than you know the Chronos and and obviously the divers. They also did some some very interesting watches, and they had some like the Central Eastern European market um, was huge for them. I don't know why, but there's a lot of Doxas in Hungary. They also imported them, and then they removed the name. Because obviously it was illegal to have um, Western goods right back then, so they they used them. I don't know what actually a tool, and there's like a circular scratch basically on the dial where they scratch the the name off. And I think if it says anti magnetic, there's there are like two circles because they scratch the the brand name and they also say, uh, scratch anti magnetic off. Um, so yeah, they they did some interesting stuff. But uh, yeah, shoot me a. Shoot me a message with pictures. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll do that. So okay. So yeah. So we we uh, promised to come back last time. We uh, talked a, a lot about the uh, our favorite vintage chronographs, and then we wanted to come back and, and tell you a few that are on each of our lists that that we'd love to pick up. And then we thought we would end with um, a couple points, uh, good entry points for vintage chronograph collectors. If if you want to get into it, and I think with with our picks, you will see that it's still possible to do it at a reasonable level. And but before that, we're, we'll hit a little bit of news. And I think um, yeah, by the time you hear this, it'll be over a week uh, a week uh, prior. But Zenith, and here in the last few days, went and. Um, they went and released a new chronograph they're calling the Chronomaster Sport. And this is a 41 millimeter stainless steel watch with a new, what they're calling the 3600 El Primero movement, which is once again, a 36,000 uh, vibrations per hour high beat movement, but they've upped the um, power reserve to 60 hours, which is, is, is pretty cool. And this watch is, I think, notable because it has a lot of traits that are very similar to a very well-known and impossible-to-get chronograph from Rolex. And I, I say that because this this new Zenith, um, while it does have um, some characteristics uh, that, that look back on its history all the way back to the A386, which was their first chronograph back in 1969, automatic chronograph, uh, such as the, the multicolored uh, or the three different colors for sub-registers, it brings in a big ceramic bezel and a very oyster-like bracelet and clasp. So I'm curious, Balash, what do you think about this? I think you said everything that I wanted to say. Um, and if you guys can read between the lines, then you probably um, know what I think. I like Zenith as a brand. I like the vintage Zeniths. I, I think they're quite interesting pieces there. And, you know, as you said earlier, they also used Excelsior Park movement. So, you know, this, the history is there. And I also love some of the newer models. Uh, I can't lie. I mean, they're heavily 
vintage inspired, obviously, which is it's always a plus to me. And I don't necessarily have a problem with this model or, well, aside from those those facts. But, you know, then again, if, if a chronograph will have a, a black ceramic bezel, it's going to be a Daytona from now on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really. But but true that the, the clasp and parts of the bracelet, the, the overall look of the watch, the white dial with the black bezel kind of reminds us of that uh, that unobtainable piece. I like the fact that they keep um, some called this a gimmicky feature. I, I like that they keep this three colored sub dials at uh, three, six, and nine, the blue, gray, and like a light gray at nine. Not a fan of the date at the four or between the four and the five o'clock, but that's just me. But I like the pump pusher. I think overall the watch doesn't look too bad at all. Um, but then think about the price of this Zenith and think about what would be a price of a new Daytona if you could get one. Obviously, you can't, but then it puts the watch into a completely different perspective, I think, because the difference is not too large. Yeah, so so they, they retail for $10,000 or, I guess, similar euros on bracelet and just 500 less for a version on straps. So, and, and, and they came out with a black dial and a white dial. Um, you know, it's interesting. The 430 date is getting tons of heat, um, although it is certainly historically correct with the A386 and so many El Primeros throughout history. Um, so I, I actually don't have an issue with that. I think, um, you know, Zenith is part of the LVMH group, which, you know, Tag Heuer, for example, is in. And last year they came out with a Carrera, which I believe is a larger diameter that also has a ceramic bezel. And there are some folks who are, are calling that into question that this, this actually has a lot of uh, similar characteristics to that. I, I think, look, the, if you take a dive watch, you take a chronograph, uh, whatever it is, I mean, there's only at some point so much real estate to work with. And, you know, the functionality, there's only so many different ways to display it. Um, and they, yeah, they're going to, going to have similar characteristics but i just uh i kind of wish like on the on the case or something that they had decided to do something a little more innovative Um, i'm not saying hollowed out lugs or anything like that but i i don't know what they could have done because but but i wish they'd done something different and i i just think that you know they've got such a great movement at the heart of this that I think separates them from, from others, you know, Omega's got the coaxial, you know, Rolex just has a robust movement. Um, and of course at one point used the El Primero, but yep. you know, Zenith is, Zenith has got something special with the movement. I just wish they had, had come out with a watch that perhaps wasn't so easy to compare to the Daytona, if that makes sense. Totally. Do you think that the watch kind of looks, I mean, aside from, the materials used in it. Do you think that the watch kind of looks outdated a bit? This is what what you refer to, like you know. I mean, of course, it's very difficult to say what's outdated, right? Because it has pump pushers, which has been around for decades. But I almost have the feeling that this looks like, and I agree with you. The movement is, you know, that's awesome, and that is basically what steals the show for this watch. But don't you think that the look is maybe a bit too aged or dated? I, I don't know. I, I 
I'm looking on the website as we speak, you know, and, and it's hard to tell from these renders. I, I, I think the addition of this black dialed version, it, it looks sharp, you know, I, I, and I bet in person, you know, when you're holding a Zenith, they are nice looking watches and their finishing is really good. I mean, it, it should be at this price. Um, so, you know, we have to handle it and see it in person. I, I don't know about dated so much. I just don't think it looks, well, it just, it, it, it looks like some other watches that are out. Right. So, um, in that respect, perhaps, uh, again, I, I, I think, you know, if you go back to the A386 from 1969 and, and then the other models they made, but, but especially the 386, you know, they, that was a limited watch back then. And, you know, they made it in stainless. Um, there was a gold version with a different um, reference number. And I think by making it limited from the get-go, they kind of, uh, they felt that they they had to take it away after a couple short years. And, you know, they brought it back a couple years back for, for some limited models. And I don't know about you, but but I think that they should have kept making the A386 for the last 50 years. And, you know, they, they could have, after that limited period, just came out with one with a white dial and one with a black dial, and they could have just been making modifications to it all along, maybe adding sapphire, you know, movement updates, whatever it is. But that's such a classic watch that I feel like with every every new El Primero that comes out, um, they're really, they struggle a little bit to get a foothold uh, to bring that, that sort of legendary... Um, kind of fervor back that, that they had with the A386, or at least how it's revered now. Although I have to say, when I look at all the LVMH brands, I find Zenith one of the most interesting of all four. Yeah. Especially if we consider history. Because, okay, Bulgari is, you know, they're awesome, and the, the watches are amazing, but there's no history there. But if I look at the history, and then, okay, I don't want to be unfair. Then maybe we only have to look at Tag Heuer and and Zenith. Then I'm not saying I'm not comparing the two, but I'm saying that Zenith has a very cool and interesting history. And even today, they they make pretty exciting watches. It's just uh, they just yeah fly under the radar. Or I'm not sure. Yeah, you know they they've got this whole El Primero line, which I which I think is definitely better than you know ten years ago. They were making these these open work dial mm-hmm. versions that were very not, you know, not very attractive in my view. And then the Defy line, which I like some of that, like uh, G2 on our team has that uh, titanium version with the, the classic with the blue dial, which is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, you know, the pilot line isn't for me. And I think that, you know, some of the Defies are, are, are a little bit similar to Hublot models with uh, ceramic cases and open work dials. Uh, but you're right. They, they, they do have some neat pieces. They've got great history. I mean, they truly were in it in terms of innovation back in the late sixties. You know, this El Primero movement is still fascinating. So I'll be curious to see how it does. You know, the, the opinions have been quite um, on, on both sides of the fence and there are people who are really excited about it, which, I'm excited to see it in person, and maybe it will maybe it will look uh, quite a bit different than than a Daytona. So, oh, let's see. And well, speaking of LVMH, mm-hmm. um, by the time this 
podcast comes out. So LVMH's 2021 releases will be out. And next week, on the week that you guys will listen to this, uh, the pieces will be released by LVMH Brands. This sounds like it replaces the Dubai meetup that uh, yeah. was held early last year this time. Right, so it was in January, this, yeah, exactly. So let's see. And, and we'll be sure to talk about uh, what comes out next time. Um, but speaking, speaking of other news, um, I guess you were reading the news and, and you found out, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> there's been another delay in something all of us are looking forward to. Yeah. I mean, um, as far as I see, or as far as I know from the, the official James Bond Instagram account, the new movie is delayed again. This time, the new date is October this year. So hopefully, um, in what, eight, nine months, we're going to have the the latest movie, which is ready and canned since, what, almost two years now? Well, way over a year, obviously. So we have to wait another few months before we see the latest James Bond movie. A lot going to happen, I think, before uh, that movie comes out, and we will see how the world responds. I don't want to get back into this COVID talk, but obviously we have to see how how things develop. We kind of talked about the Olympics. I heard that it's canceled. You checked, and there's no official information on that. We don't know what's going to happen with that. We don't know what's going to happen with the Euro Cup. Um, well, we know that Watches and Wonders will be online again this year, uh, uh, later on this year. So, uh, yeah, one step at a time, I guess. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so let's, um, let's, let's move into our main topic where we talk about Mm -hmm. some vintage chronographs that are currently on our list. And I'd ask that you go, you, you kick us off, Balash, on, okay, okay, on your shopping list. The first one that's on my list is actually something that I know you do have, but I've never seen it. And that's the the Hamilton Chronomatic with the Calibre 11. that was mm. developed in 1969. Speaking of Zenith El Primeros, obviously this was um, one of the competitors, right, of Zenith and Psycho in 69, who comes out first uh, with a, an automatic chronograph movement. And... Um, so it was the Zenith El Primero, and then Psycho with the 6139, uh, and then there was this joint development venture by Hamilton Buren, Breitling, Hoyer, and uh, Dubois Depra. And um, yeah, so, and then the result was the Calibre 11, right? Which was a first movement, and then came the Calibre 12, and so on and so forth, which is their first automatic chronograph caliber. And it went into a number of watches, right? It went into Breitling's, went into Hamilton's and Hoyer's, obviously. Uh, but for some reason, my favorite is the is the Hamilton, the blue Hamilton chronomatic, which is, I think, or which was the the, you know, the inspiration for the new Intramatic Auto Chrono, which I have, also with the blue dial. Although this time, um, both the hand, I mean, the pushers and the crown are on the right side and. The, the most recognizable feature of the Calibre 11 chronos is that the crown is on the re- on the left side and the pushers are on the right side, which is um, which is quite a, a funky feature and I like that uh, quite a lot. And also the color and the font of the chronomatic on the dial. So, yeah, that's my um, that's my first pick, um, Hamilton chronomatic. And since you own one, uh, why don't you share your thoughts about this watch with me? 
So uh, yeah, I I'm with you. For me, it's it's really my favorite caliber eleven model. There are a couple Breitlings I like as well, um, and sure the 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 Monaco I think is is always just a cool watch. Uh, but but I like the Hamilton because of the size. It's not too huge, and it also looks a little bit like a traditional chronograph. It, it looks like some traditional hand wound chronographs that Hamilton made before that typically with white white dials and, and black subregisters. You know, the one thing I will say about a Caliber 11 is that winding it, which can be done, is not, not, the, um, it's not the most, uh, it's not the smoothest watch to wind. And it um, is a, a modular movement, as you mentioned, with the Dubois Dupre module. And it's thick, it's chunky. So mm-hmm. very different than putting on, a piece from the time with like a 7733, which is not the thinnest in itself versus the old uh, column wheel pieces, but it, it's got a different feel to it. And I think that, you know, caliber 11s, 12s, 13s, as you mentioned, those aren't watches that I gravitate towards generally. And I don't really feel a need to go out and collect more of them. I've had my opportunities, um, especially with some nice Breitling pieces, but in the end, I, I just knew I wouldn't end up wearing it very much. So, for, but, but I wanted to have one in the collection just because it is historically significant. And for me, this was the one. And uh, so, so I wholly support your decision there if you decide to go down that path. Yeah, that's a nice watch. And there's also the Fontainebleau, which is a... Um... Uh, a very different watch in many ways, but it's also very similar. It also has the same caliber, the Hamilton Fontainebleau. Um, but that's a bit more out there. That's a bit more of these seventies, chunky, funky uh, looking watch. Yeah. But yeah, but this is this is um, this is one on my on my wish list. Not the first one, but something that at, at one point I would like to own, or at least you know for a f- wear it for a few weeks to see how it feels. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, and the blue is a really nice color. It's very different than yeah. a lot of yeah. other companies were using at the time. Yeah, so. I agree. It's beautiful blue. So what's your first one? So my first one is uh, just, it fits into watches like I, I mentioned on our last episode, the, the Breitling 765 and the Hoyer Atavia. It is a it is another chronograph with a rotating bezel, and it's it's one of the few I I don't own that, that I'd like to have, and that is the Movado Super Sub C. And this was a 1960s watch uh, that was, was a diving chronograph. There's a, a Zenith counterpart because the two were related at that point or under the same ownership. And this is a pretty neat watch. It, it used a, um, a different movement that we haven't really spoken about called the 146 HP, which is based off of a Martell uh, movement. And, you know, Movado slash Zenith really went for it on this because they used a, a case from EPSA, uh, the, the super compressor maker. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's about a 41 millimeter watch, which of course, for the 1960s is a very, very generous size. And it has this, um, as I mentioned, this, uh, dive bezel, this 60 minute dive bezel and inside it as a tachometer around the, uh, around the edge of the dial three register, uh, these really cool, bold loomed hands and a very Zenith like uh, center chronograph hand with a rectangular loomed pip kind of near the top. And 
I just think it's a it's a really cool watch. I think that it's not that different from other pieces I own, like the um, oof, what is it, the, uh, the Zodiac Octavia or the Breitling? Oh, yeah, okay. it's similar to those. The the Zodiac Cron I think looks very similar. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, as a person who likes to collect variations on a theme, this is a bit of a missing uh, piece in my collection and. Funny story, I think it was uh, probably six odd, six, seven years ago, uh, Fred Mandelbaum and I had stumbled on a for sale listing where a person had both a Movado and a Zenith version of this watch, and they were selling them at a reasonable price, and they were coming out of um, Monaco. And I had gotten in touch with the seller, and it pretty quickly ex uh, exposed itself as a pretty shady listing. <laughs> and uh, You know, the, it was one of these where the person was just a little too adamant about getting the money before they gave any details on how we'd meet up or or whatever. And thankfully, we uh, we pulled out and, and pretty much found it was it was a fake. Um, but these watches used to be, you know, like everything, twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred dollars all day, and now they're you know call it eight to ten thousand. So that is why it has not been something I have very very easily added. Uh, so. There we are. Yeah, and that's and the the reason I said Hoyer and Breitling is because for those of you who who listened to the last uh, podcast episode, we talked about our uh, favorite watches in our collection, and you know you talked about your Zenit, I mean your uh, Breitling and your Hoyer, and that's kind of the same theme as you said. It's the black bezel, black dial, uh, white sub dials, like a reverse panda look, uh, especially the the first generation of of this Movado Super Sub C reminds me of those early hoyers so i can definitely see the pattern there yeah yeah but there's a, there's another version right with the orange uh rotating inside bezel um yeah. of the subsea maybe 70s i'm not sure kind of like a uh, what's the case shape like the hoyer uh camaro yeah uh, but it's a huge watch i think isn't it it's like 42 or 43 yeah yeah is that also the same era or is it I think it's a touch later, so it could be late 60s or very early 70s. And they made um, they made a three-hand version and they made a chronograph, and they're also pretty darn expensive. And like the one I mentioned, yeah, often a lot of replaced parts because, of course, they were dive-themed. So most of those let some water in at some point. Um, also really neat. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Cool. So cool what's your pieces. second one? Uh, my second one is a chronograph classic, I think. And that's not necessarily a, a model, but again, it's a movement. And that's the Longin 13ZN. Oh, yeah. I think that's, um, that's a very interesting um, movement, right? And then, you know, whatever watch it houses has to be an interesting watch as well. So this one is a movement from 1936. I mean, if you think about it, You know, they made this 29 millimeter uh, movement. It's pretty small caliber. So most watches, um, most Longin 13ZNs are around 34 millimeter and up. I mean, you can see them 35, 36, but but a lot of these 13ZN watches are are only 34 because the movement is simply just 29 millimeters. And this is the is you know flyback, but it's not the first flyback chronograph movement by Longin because that's the 13 dot. 33z mm. from 1929 which is even more mind-boggling if you think about it like 1929 
Longin developed a flyback chronograph movement and uh, the 13ZN is from 36. So it's it's crazy. Um, there's a cool article on SJX about this uh, first, very first, first flyback chronograph, the 13.33Z. So we can put this also in the show notes. Um, that's a pretty nice article about that movement. But going back to the 13ZM, yeah, I think that it's a beautifully made movement if you open it and you know you you see the the caliber you see how it's done it's just you know a treat to look at it and um i've had a few in my circle friends so i i tried it i wore it for a few days it's very special the way you operate the chronograph and then how the flyback works and you think about it that it's really from 36 1936 it's just such a such an amazing watch has 1800 i mean 18000 vph so you know pretty pretty standard chronograph movement but sadly though those prices again as you said skyrocketed to 8 9 10000 and a lot of the watches are as i said either small which it's not really a problem for me but on the other hand um the dials are often redials so you really have to find a decent piece which has an original dial maybe the size is you know 35 and steel and not uh, gold plated or gold it's not really my thing so uh yeah that would be my second pick at launching 13 zn yeah we i mean we've got uh, kind of a cool circle that we mutually hang out with and and there are some real longing fans there and to mm-hmm. look back at what they they used to do i mean it's nice to see the brand now coming out with some some pretty exciting stuff and and i would say getting it right more often than not um but back in the day, they were really innovators and pioneers in terms of Absolutely. making tool watches and just in- impressive movements. Um, yeah, if you go watch a, a proper auction where rare Longine comes up, um, there are absolute uh, fanatics out there for this brand. And mm-hmm. as they should be, I mean, they like I said, just just some incredible watches. I and the other thing I think to note about Longine is if you're interested in them, you know, whether it's a, a complicated watch like this or just a basic watch, if you get the information, um, their archives department is supposedly just fantastic to work with. It's all free. Um, they will send you information, you know, whatever they have. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Yeah. I have I uh, I have written an article about uh, extract of archives from certain brands of maybe a few years ago for Fratello, and so obviously we both you and I had experiences with Omega, and we've both been in the archives, so we know how that works. Um, I just talked about my uh, Tissot Jumbo earlier in the podcast, and I, it just reminded me that I have uh, an extract of archives from Tissot as well uh, for that watch. Our our mutual friend Pim. Uh, shout out to Pim helped uh, helped me get one of those, and um, I also had a, a Longine, which I sold, and I had a, an archive for that, an extract from the archives for that as well. And it was the easiest process ever. Um, they don't give you a lot of information, but whatever they do is you know it's valid. They send you the information via email, and then in a few days later. I guess you will receive the the, the a letter with the paper, the printed uh, extract document. So, yeah, it's, um, nice, it's a it's nice very easy. Yeah, and this was a massive, uh, of course, just a, a massive company making everything from basic watches to, like we said, complicated. And you do see 
all kinds of Longines at uh, flea markets and whatever. And if you find one you like, it's kind of fun to be able to then chat with the archives department and, and find out a little bit more about your watch. Um, I think it can really spark more interest. So, okay. So my second one, <clears throat> this is cribbing from you a little bit. I'm going back in the, uh, back in the decades, more, more than the sixties. And I have always had an interest in the, uh, Breitling Premier or Premier, as as some would say, the triple seven, and specifically those in gold with um, with the pump pushers. So this was a thirty eight millimeter version of the Premier, and they also made smaller versions. Uh, these thirty eight millimeter pieces are tougher to come by, and of course our Fred uh, our friend Fred has several of them. I believe the cases were made by uh, Gabus Freres, and this was a, a case maker who supplied to various other brands, and I believe even some of the very high-end brands that, um, you know, the, the, their watches fetch uh, six-figure type prices. So, you know, Breitling was really doing some pretty pretty impressive things back in the day, and these triple sevens use the Venus 175 column wheel movement, so the the, the uh, two register version of of the 178, and it came in a variety of dial styles. If you go check out uh, Watch Fred, his uh, Instagram feed, you'll notice that he just posted a new one that he uh, received with this. I hate to use the word tropical, but this unbelievable dial that was, I guess, black at one point that has turned this almost oxblood cherry red color and stunning absolutely stunning these these are tough to find and you know fred has had a little bit of access to some archival documents at breitling and you know there were years there where they made you, you could count them on maybe three people's hands uh, the number of gold pieces that they made so tough to find um not cheap, but you know nothing compared to what you would pay for some of the brands like Paddock and and others. I mean, we're talking still in some cases sub ten thousand dollars. So a lot of value there, and I think just a thirty eight millimeter gold case would look uh, would look fantastic. So there you go. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm just looking at Fred's picture, and that's that's yeah, that's a stunning piece. With the applied Breitling logo above uh, the Breitling and the sword hands, it's really, uh, really something special. It's a nice watch, very nice looking watch. And I, I seen the. I'm guessing those are uh, newer models where you don't see the applied logo, just see the the name Breitling, and they got a very funky sixes. If you, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That if you look at these uh, printed sixes, they they look like a like a like a triangle or almost like a, a teardrop. Yeah, yeah, it, it, and I don't know, Balash, if those were different uh, years, uh, so they they were sort of changing things. But what amazes me about Breitling and especially the uh, Premier line, you know, Fred, uh, I have to ask him how many Premier pieces he owns. It's probably some eye-watering number, but it's very, very rare that I see more than one of the same. And it's not because he's trying to collect different ones, but it just does feel like there were so many different dial variations. And even across, you know, from steel to, um, to gold, you know, 
it didn't didn't feel to me like they were often making the same exact dial style for for both, just with some slight differences. It really feels like there were just tons of variations. I don't know if they were, you know, custom orders or based upon the country they shipped to, uh, but mm-hmm. it's it's a wild rabbit hole, really. Well, if anyone, then Fred definitely knows the the end, or well, gives you as close as possible when it comes to numbers. But yeah, there's really, I mean, even if you just search for 777, there's, you don't see two uh, that look even remotely similar when it comes to the dial design. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So how about your uh, next and final? Yes. So my last one, it's the Junkans J88 Bundeswehr watch. Ooh, cool piece. So this one is a, a bit of a a tricky one because... It came out in the 50s, right, the early 50s. But uh, the movement is is obviously older. And um, there are some rumors about why Junkans named this caliber J88. And I'm just going to, you know, leave this to the imagination of, of the people who know history. Um, I guess you and I both know what... what uh, I'm trying to refer to without saying it. I don't know if that's true. I would love to believe that it's not. Mm. But, you know, we, we never know. Um, on the other hand, the movement is is just amazing. Again, if you just open the case and you look at this uh, column wheel, chronograph movement, like um, it's just beautiful to see. And the watch is very special. Um, it was made for, as I said, for the Bundeswehr, so for the German army. After Germany lost the war, obviously they couldn't keep an army. And in the early 50s, um, they established the Bundeswehr, which was a new, um, the new army after the Wehrmacht was um, uh, basically banned. And so the first watch, one of the first watches that the Bundeswehr commissioned was um, this Junkans chronograph. So it's a 38 millimeter chronograph watch with a manual wind so the j88 movement is Junkans's in-house manual wind column wheel chronograph movement with uh, i think eighteen thousand vph as well um so development i think for the caliber the j88 started in 1946 so right after the war and they built that current caliber obviously into many private uh, models as well so if you look for vintage Junkans um, chronographs chances are that the movement inside is the j88 but um when the bundeswehr was established and then they won the tender so they made the first watch i think it was in 1952 and that was the the earliest bund uh, earliest bundeswehr chronograph um and then they produced this these watches from 19 early 50s as i said 52 to like mid 60s when um um, obviously, after that, we know that Hoyer took over and then Leonidas took over and Sin and, and whatnot. But this was the, the very first one. And you can you can constantly recognize this watch with this wave pattern uh, bezel on it. And I also covered it in one of these uh, articles for Fratello. I didn't have one, so I don't have one. But Junkhans uh, sent me one from their museum. Oh. for the review so i had it and um it was a lovely piece unfortunately i had to give it back but that's always in the back of my mind you know like ah, and from time to time i check ebay and uh, i was like yeah it would be nice to to have one one day 
So, so that watch, I mean, this is also one where when I was just getting into things, I feel like um, they were really findable. I mean, this sounds laughable now, but at roughly a thousand euros and sometimes even less, which uh, mm-hmm. is nuts because that is not the price today. And they kind of hung around there forever while other uh, military pieces, especially military chronographs, were really starting to soar. And it feels like these took a while, much honestly like the uh, the Hoyer Bundeswehr chronographs. They, they took a while to take off yeah. too. Um, and tell me on this one, if I remember right, does it have a chrome case? Yeah. So the case actually looks like sandblasted steel. So it's not polished and it's not even brushed. It has this this matte finish and it's a chrome case so that could be one of the reasons so um but it's well it's not chrome but it's this sandblasted chrome whatever material i don't know what they use brass underneath i think right it's brass underneath right and on top of it you have this matte as i said almost sandblasted looking finish uh this coating this gray coating and this could be one of the reasons um also that they also uh, they had a lot of watches or you can still find them where the the inscription from the back is missing okay because if it was uh, an original bundeswehr watch it would have uh, an inscription something like uh, bundeswehr eigentum so be, uh, property of the bundeswehr blah 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 and uh, to be honest i don't really know i at that point i i dug too deep in history but i don't remember anymore why but could have been private pieces or could have been just put together some parts i'm not sure but there are a lot of who knows yeah yeah exactly there's a lot of watches where that that is missing or it could have been polished out at one point when the the soldier took it home you know that you know the story with many military watches where eventually they they polish out the the inscription so um yeah as you said for a long time it was and around 800 thousand thousand two maybe 15 um but now you don't really see them anymore and if it comes with the original bundeswehr strap with the um the embossed bundeswehr number on the on the leather strap as well and obviously boxing but it had just a tin box it goes for probably three four five thousand uh, which which is a lot, but it's a lovely watch. It's great size. I mean, thirty eight. You know, the bezel is nice. The movement is beautiful. Yeah, I'm with you and on the bezel. The bezel is very distinctive. That scalloped bezel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a wavy pattern all around. It's very easy to rotate. Um, so that's a very cool watch. And and when I had it, the the only problem, so to speak, I had with uh, this piece that Junkans gave me is that it was a blocked watch, so I couldn't wear it. Uh, other than, uh, <laughs> yeah, other than uh, you know, just put it on the wrist. Um, but yeah, I have this book from you know Konrad Knerim about uh, German military watches and British military watches, which I use as a backdrop for the photos in the article. And there's just a bunch of them. And then you can also see this this paper box or tin box where the watch came in, and it had this German you know kind of uh, wobbly funny bracelet that gets kind of just you know broke after a few years so mostly you can find them on leather straps um just stick hands like normal stick hands big loom numerals pump pushers it's a very simple watch but i guess you know it's a military watch it gets the job done so well i'm not happy for you 
bringing it up because uh, I had sort of forgotten about that watch and now it's in my mind again. So thanks. <laughs> so what's your last one? Yeah, my last one actually is sort of on that same um, on that same theme, and it is the Jardur bezel meter from. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess from the 1950s, although perhaps they they started coming out in the 1940s as well. And this is a really uh, a neat watch. Um, this is another example of a company that you know, kind of like uh, Mylon, which we mentioned I think a couple re- episodes back, uh, their watch. But they they were making um, basically aviation equipment. You know, everything from timers and different things that were for the dashboard and they also did some watches, which I would assume they, you know, just contracted out the different parts and stuff like that. But, you know, these watches um, came in several different styles and variants over the years. You know, they updated the hands and things like that. There are white dialed models. There are very attractive, and I and I would I would happily take one. Um, gold plated models that look really really cool. But the most famous ones or the most valuable ones are stainless models that have black dials. Um, they use the Valjoux seventy two, I believe, and possibly mm-hmm. the seventy one in the early ones um, from the forties. But these these have these really cool luminescent cathedral hands and black dial with red highlights and a lot of loom. And as such, many of them are, have very rough, uh, well, the, the dials are in rough condition, but that doesn't seem to affect the value terribly as long as they're still legible and haven't been, um, you know, relumed or something like that. And these uh, have, once again, a rotating 12-hour bezel, um, with uh, kind of painted numerals on that bezel and a, typically a red arrow at 12. Um, like I said, many different uh, variants, some with pump pushers, uh, some with just the uh, kind of oval pushers, uh, and ju- just a really, really distinctive watch. Uh, I, I've... I've looked over the years, you know, they, they hang around anywhere from 3,500 to, you know, above six, you know, yeah, I I think at that six price, people are dreaming a bit, but maybe for some in just astounding condition that that's feasible. Uh, but I've, I've, I'd say this probably out of all three pieces is, um, is the one that I would like to pick up most just because I find it so unique and attractive. Uh, I, I don't, I, yes. I've seen a couple in person from Fred. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I think he brought a handful of different variants, of course. And uh, it goes by the Jardur bezel meter 960. Now I have written an article on an earlier or an, a, a different Jardur with a Landeron movement. And it's a, a gold plated model that has almost turned brassy looking. And it's nowhere near as valuable, nowhere near as well-known. But if you go into that article, which we'll link here, uh, you can see that Jardur was offering everything from this three-register bezel meter to the two-register model I have, and then some three-handed watches as well. So they were doing some neat things for that brief period there. And um, yeah, I, I, I would like to add one of these very much. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen one in person, Balash, but you certainly know the watch. I've yeah I've seen um 
you know, I had this magic watchmaker back in Hungary um, who just, uh, you know, happened to <laughs> pull out a drawer and five of these would fall out. Like, okay, I'm a bit exaggerating, but he had a Jardour, which was um, using the same movement. I think it was also a Volge 72, but it was completely, I, I think I still have a photo somewhere. It was completely black, just had the, you know, the numbers and the indexes. So it was probably the civilian version of this watch because the size I, re I remember the size was large it didn't have a bezel but it had the pump pushers a large size a black bezel with charter painted on it and black uh, i mean white numerals and indexes and that's it so but i have never seen a watch uh like that since then yeah so i don't know what kind of model it was or what kind of uh, you know probably at the same time it came out when when this one yeah, and I and I don't know. Um, I've not read extensively enough, but I'm not exactly sure if these were ever really officially issued. It's possible that some squadrons maybe bought them and, and supplied them, but I don't think I've ever seen any military markings on them. Um, one thing to note, because people are, are sometimes surprised about this, but with any Jardour, when you open the case back, the movement is always marked uh, Pilgrim Electric Company. And I think that was the parent name for Jardour. Perhaps they were doing other things too, like radios and other other stuff. But um, I always find that kind of fascinating. Pilgrim Electric. So hmm. interesting. I, what I wanted to say is that uh, the company obviously, well, still exists or or exists again. I mean, they they produce new watches, right, with the same name. And I think that the guy, um, I could be wrong, but either the guy who owns the company. Or it's just a random dude, but I think it's the guy who owns this this reissued or you know reestablished company. Um, he is a huge fan of well, clearly of the brand, and he did an extensive research on these models. And he has some kind of connection. Maybe he he inherited this from his grandfather, who was a fighter. I'm I'm not sure. I'm really not not uh, too deep into history, but I remember reading about it. And then on his Instagram, he always posts about vintage models and, and this version and that version. So he did, I think he probably, you know, bought the name back uh, and then restarted the company. And um, he always writes about, about vintage models and, and he did a lot of research. So um, if you go on to jardur.com, J-A-R-D-U-R.com, then you'll be able to, to find the new models, the history of the watch and and the brand it's um it's pretty cool it's quite quite interesting all right i'll have to go read that and uh further get sucked in so <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> so that so that so yeah so those those were some some watches that we're we're looking out for and uh we, we thought now we'd we'd switch to the final piece here where we we give a couple recommendations for those who are interested in getting into vintage chronographs and you know, the models we, we mentioned um, this week and a couple weeks on our ago on our last episode are all pretty well-known pieces, maybe some less so than others, but they don't qualify as inexpensive. Um, but, you know, you can still get into the vintage chronograph game and your hands on some of these, I think, really legendary movements. Um, some have column wheels, some don't. Um, but you can do that at an accessible price. And I, I think that, 
you know, whether it's a brand or whether it's the movement itself, we, we've got some recommendations for you. So why don't, why don't you lead us off, Balash? Mm-hmm. So when I thought about this, this question, um, I did not pick models. I picked movements. Uh, but luckily you picked models, which funnily enough, uh, some of them have the same movement that I picked. Um, and my first choice would be a Vajju 7733 or a 7734. But the difference being that the 7734 has a date feature and a 7733 usually doesn't. And I mean, that was the next step after the 72. It's not a column wheel chronograph movement, but it's it's still a mechanical manual wind chronograph movement. And you virtually find hundreds of different brands and models with with these calibers so whether you want a blue one a black one a green one a small one a round one a square one you know you can you can pick whatever and the the one model that came to mind when i thought about the 773x series is the sakura mg uh, chronograph and that's a 7734 so that one has a date feature and you know sakura is i mean i don't know if it's true or not mike you probably know this better that they they always uh, isn't the brand that they always connect to breitling mm-hmm. in one way yeah. or another i think there's some distribution um, uh, tie in there somehow so yeah so they call them breitling sakuras obviously to make it more sexy i guess or uh, vintage sakuras but there's this sakura um 7734 uh, chronograph, which has the MG logo, so the car brand, Morris Garage uh, logo, because it was made for the 50th anniversary uh, of the company to commemorate the company in 1975, 1925 to 1975. And the fun fact about this watch is that the 7734 usually has the date at the 6 o'clock position. On this watch, the date is at the 12, because the logo, the MG logo, is at 6 it's a relatively large case, I think about 41 uh, millimeter. And um, the the hands are also funny because the hour hand is a triangle and the minute hand is a stick hand. And the sub-registers have orange chronograph hands and things like that. So um, that is a very sweet watch. I, I quite like it. But in general, I think that, well, and I, I guess we can both agree that the 773X movements are are great alternatives yeah they they really are and they're very robust and they're also really easy to fix i i bought a um a leisure i guess with the uh like you said the 7734 mm-hmm. and it wasn't working um very inexpensive it was like kind of a neat 70s piece with a pvd case and i sent it for service and <laughs> i got the response back well it looks like somebody dropped this from a very high height because literally I think the, um, the main plate was cracked. Yeah. So, so yeah, the movement was really a goner, but at that time, Lejour did not use, uh, they didn't sign their movements. So the watchmaker said, yeah, I just happen to have another one of these, uh, movements, a loose movement, and we'll just swap it out. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that with a lot of other movements. So, and it wasn't expensive. So, you know, and that was a few years ago, so maybe things have changed. But uh, I'm with you; these are these these are really good movements to look for, and you get all that good mechanical feeling from that period. Um, I actually also own a couple watches with the seven seven three six, so that's the three register version. Uh, so if you're 
if you're a person who loves having three registers on their watch, there's there's a, a low cost option there, or sometimes a lower cost option. But the Secura you mentioned is really neat. It, it kind of reminds me of some Certinas that you have uh, with, with that C case, uh, but the hands on this are really pretty special and don't really pretty look funky, like. Yeah? Yeah, they're not really shared with uh, a bunch of Me Too watches from the time. So, good good pick. Um, my my pick is is somewhat similar because they also made some seventies esque watches, but the the company Romer R O A M E R is is my pick, and specifically some watches like the uh, Stingray, and you'll find some others. I, I wrote an article on a Romer. Uh, as well on Fratello that we'll link to. And it was available both with the um, uh, the column wheel values and with the, uh, like you said, the later 7734. Uh, so I... I so ha- help me. Which one is the Valju? Um I mean, um, I believe that- because they had the one with the big bezel, right? And then they had the one with this uh, C-shaped case. Yeah, so I have the Stingray here and the the Stingray Chrono Diver with a uh with a big bezel. And then there's a piece mm-hmm. um without the bezel like you said that mostly used a Valju 72 and okay. I, I believe that's also a Stingray, but it's not a um it's not a Chrono Diver. So Oh, I get it. Yeah. And Romer is is a pretty fascinating brand. Like if you look back to uh, brands like uh, Omega and I want to say did, yeah, well, Omega certainly signed their crystals in the middle with their logo and still does. And Romer did as well. And, you know, all the signed um, crowns and really very, in a lot of cases, very unique case designs, Um, you know, applied logos, lots of loom. So you were dealing with, I would guess, a pretty high, high quality brand, and you know they they had their struggles, of course, during the quartz period as well. But they they also made some pretty neat non chronograph watches. We don't need to spend time on because we're talking chronographs. But this is this is a way to get into, I think, a really neat '60s, early '70s watch for pretty good price. Like I, I see here on Chrono Twenty Four, the Valju Seventy Two piece, the Stingray at 1500 euros and to get a value 72 at that level is, is pretty nice. Um, and one with, with really good build quality. And then, yeah, most of the other chronographs I see from that period from them are in the same price range. So 1500 euros you're getting, or, or dollars, you're getting a really credible piece. And I think that that could be a good entryway into vintage chronographs. So that's my, that's mine. What's yeah, that's next, that's uh, a nice, that's a nice pick. Yeah, I, I think that I, I think that uh, the Valjean seventy two is well. We talked about this earlier, right? In the other episode, it's like an iconic movement, and for a reason. So any watch basically with a seventy two is like it's a no brainer <laughs> to me. Yeah. You know, if it has a watch seventy two in it, give it to me. And but aside from that, as you said, these Romans actually look quite good. Uh, the design is nice. It's pretty colorful. So um, I never knew about the, the signed crystal. I know that Universal Genève used to sign the crystals and even Eterna. I have a I have a Certina chronograph which uses an Eterna case and 
so I, basically everything is a turner other than the, the 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 dial and the movement and the case is marked and also the crystal is marked so when you got this 13 watch it came with the five little dots uh, in the middle of the crystal from Eterna. But I never knew about Romer. Yeah, it's a pretty cool watch. Um, so my last pick um, is, again, n- not a model uh, because there was none, but it's uh, any chronograph with an Angelus 215 movement. And of course I have to, you know, uh, p- push my my second favorite brand. <laughs> it's my, my second favorite brand. Um, shout out to Angelus never even acknowledged me maybe <laughs> maybe now um but no all jokes aside um there are obviously we we talked about the large the 38 millimeter steel case angelus 215s military pieces and those are relatively expensive but there are smaller versions 35 millimeter uh, versions of um, these angelus watches that use the 215 and those are usually i just checked them a few weeks ago those usually go for around six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand, thousand two hundred, obviously depending on the condition. And I've I've done some research. I'm trying to put an article together on these smaller pieces. Um, you know me, I have my excess sheets, all serial numbers and case shapes and things like that. So it's going to be a pretty uh, in-depth article uh, on this on these watches, and, and this is um, two case shapes particularly that I'm talking about. But there are a bunch of uh, watches and not only Angelus, but obviously they provide, um, uh, produce, sorry, movements for other companies. So what you need to do is you need to search for the Angelus 215 movement. And once you see the picture and you can search for these watches, you can compare. And if, you know, the movement looks like on the picture, then it's probably an Angelus 215. Because sometimes people try to advertise watches with other movements as Angelus 215, and that's not the case. Um, but a lot of other other brands, a lot of um, smaller brands uh, bought these watches. And that's the 215 is an in-house movement by Angelus. It's a Columbia chronograph movement. And just like the Romer, I think around, um, as I said, six, seven, eight hundred up to... 15, 16, you can get a, a decent watch. Um, sometimes with chrome cases, sometimes in steel cases, 35 upwards. I never really made, I never really saw smaller than 34, 30, 35 and up. And uh, funny side note, if you remember one of our other mutual friend, Jeff, he, I think he bought or at least he was talking about an Abercrombie and Fitch chronograph that had a, a Hoyer movement inside, or maybe there are multiple. So Abercrombie and Fitch also made watches, or well, Angelus made watches for Abercrombie and Fitch with Angelus two fifteens inside them, or two tens, I think, inside them, which looked very similar to the to the uh, to the Hoyer models. It was a chrome cases and had Abercrombie and Fitch on the dial, and it was an unsigned movement, but. Some of those models were uh, Angelus chronograph movements. So they're out there. Um, they're relatively cheap. Don't pay, you know, for overpriced watches because they're not worth it. Um, but around fifteen, sixteen, I think you can you can find a decent Angelus two fifteen. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking on Chrono twenty four, and of course, um, most of them are Angelus branded, and they're more expensive, uh, but. Boy, in the even in the Angelus brand, you know, you're right. In this 2,000 to 2,500 range, there are quite a few options. I think uh, you would know much better 
what to look for in terms of what's been changed, but I see a lot of really, really nice options. And what's cool about a lot of these watches is that they have a lot of loom on them. They're really, yeah, they're, they're really what people would think about when they think about a, an old chronograph that exhibits a lot of charm and character. So, and I'm sure what I'm looking at is just, um, you know, the tip of the iceberg on what's out there. And, you know, so if you look at eBay Kleinanzeiger, you look at eBay uh, or Gumtree or Craigslist, whatever, um, you might be able to find, uh, you know, much cheaper. I mean, the, the cheapest on Chrono is actually a brand called Rectory. And that's that's one of those those um, sub brands or, or these other companies that use the 215. And that's 1,450 euros. I mean, you know, it's it's not too bad at all. The case is 38. It's a chrome case, but it's 38 millimeters. I think it's um, it's a pretty decent size. The the movement inside uh, looks to me like a 210, not a 215, but it doesn't really matter. So yeah, and then the next one on Chrono is another uh, sub brand called Oriental. Uh, what is that? Oriental Chronograph, and then you have an Angelus for 1,600. So as I said, they're still out there. Just have to be patient. Yeah, very cool. Really good idea and yeah, great way to get into incredible movement. Yeah. So, so what's yours? Yeah, my, my last one is, is something that I actually did probably six, seven years ago. So I have experience with this, but uh, Volcane. So most people, when they think of Volcane, think about the cricket, the, the very famous alarm watch that has been mm-hmm. worn by many, many presidents. And, and Eric Wind. Yeah, and our friend Eric Wynn, who, who really loves these. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thomas, yeah, I think, has a, couple, has a couple as well. Um, but yeah, Volcane was making or at least selling other types of watches as well. And I find from them in the 60s and 70s, you know, they were using just typical off-the-shelf cases, and it looked like Singer dials. And you can find... Watches with with the uh, 77, 33, 34 movement pretty easily. And like you said, sometimes steel, sometimes chrome case or, or plated gold. Um, I actually have a Volcane um, triple date uh, with, uh, with a gold plated case and you know, the Valju column wheel movement that they used. And I think I paid at the time like $700 for it. And so, so Volcane is actually a really nice place to look. And like, like I said before, uh, you have some name recognition with them. And while they weren't really as innovative as their cricket, um, it's still sometimes nice to, to look down on your wrist and say, well, I know the brand, even though this wasn't really them maybe doing their finest work. Um, I, I think it's also a nice way to get into things. So yeah, here again, if you look on eBay or if you look on Chrono24, you can find some really good examples. They they use some really nice colors. Like the one that I have is a chrome case. Uh, I believe it's a 7733 with a blue dial. And it's a beautiful watch. Um, has 18 millimeter lugs, so pretty small. I think like 36 millimeter round case. Very traditional looking 60s chronograph. Um, but here again, a really good way to get into into the vintage chronograph game and see if that's a style that you like. If you enjoy winding your watch, if you if you find that it um, 
something that inspires you to to collect more of them later. No, so, yeah. absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And I love, I'm just looking at yours from the TBT article and I, I quite like the look because it is in, indeed this blue, very similar blue to the, to the, the, the Hamilton uh, we just yeah. talked about earlier, but a white sub dials and red chronograph hands and applied indexes, kind of a small case, pump pushers. But then they also have this, uh, they have these, um, it's not even a, a C case. What is that? Uh, you know, kind of like a helmet. Yep. case you know what i mean there's uh, more uh funky dial designs with the 7734 yeah there's a, there's a bunch out there uh of these volcanes it's a great pick yeah it's a cool brand so all right well that's a wrap um and next week or in a couple of weeks we're going to come back and we're going to talk about scarcity so we we mentioned on our last episode, this is something we wanted to discuss, um, you know, watches that are really hard to find, watches that are limited, and just some of the, the frustration that surrounds this and, and our thoughts on it. And if, as, as, as always, if you have any ideas about a show topic, uh, please come back to either of us or through Fratello directly. I'm on Mike in Frankfurt at Instagram and Balash, you are on. And I'm on Ferenc Bar, so F-E-R-E-N-C-Z-I-B-A-Z-S. Uh, you will find me also if you start typing or just go on any of Mike's posts. And I'm probably there tagged. Absolutely. So thanks so much for spending time with us, um, talking more about vintage chronographs, and we'll talk to you soon. Frankfurt out. Karlsruhe over and out.